From Salesforce Studios, this is Blazing Trails. Welcome back to Blazing Trails and to another segment of our Leading Through Change series. I'm Laura Woods with the Salesforce blog. Today's guest is author, speaker, and advisor, Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey is a management consultant who splits his time between all kinds of companies from newly minted startups to established enterprises. He has written a number of books, including Crossing the Chasm, which has sold more than a million copies, and he is considered one of the most influential high-tech advisors in the world. Jeffrey joins journalist Ari Bendersky to discuss power metrics versus performance metrics, what different industries can expect to see as their quote-unquote new normal, and tips for leaders who are trying to redefine their company mission to better suit today's changing world. All of that and more on today's episode with Jeffrey Moore. So, Jeffrey, I'd like to welcome you here and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Ari. Good to be here. Nice to have you. So, you've advised many companies on, quote, how to play the game in this world. Uh, how does a pandemic change the game? Well, I mean, we all made annual plans in January, and we're now looking at them with sort of like, what was this all about? Uh, you know, if you think about how Salesforce does that, they have this, this V2 mom thing, which many of the uh, on this podcast might know, but it starts with vision and values. And those are like, where are you trying to get to and what do you want to exemplify in the way you get there? Those actually don't change in a, in a pandemic. You still, you want to reiterate your vision and your values because your reason to be has not changed. But everything else in that process, what they call methods, obstacles, and measures, those are all different now. And so you, what's important for your organization, both for your employees, your customers, your partners, your whole ecosystem, is you got to restate your mission and then get scrappy about, so how would I now execute my mission, remembering it's the mission, stupid, and just kind of go forward from there. Got it. Um, so any other piece of advice on that topic? broad pieces of advice that you can advise companies, both big and small? Well, you know, there's something else important, which is when, when, you're, when you get not completely off plan, your performance commitments for the year are pretty much, they've been knocked away. And, and the tendency is to scrabble back and to try to pick up as many pieces as you can and bring back at least something. And that's actually the, a mistaken priority. The, what you want to do when you take a body blow is Set down your performance objectives for a moment and think about power, because what you want to do is build enough power to come back. And so power metrics are very different from performance metrics. They're much more around where do you have support from your customers, where can you build new ecosystem relationships, or, or strengthen the ones you already have, how do you get back into the game. And so thinking about your priorities in terms of how do I get my power back as opposed to how can I eke out some amount of performance? That's an important idea. So it's really more about being strategic and not being in panic mode um, and being more proactive versus reactive, yeah? Yeah, very much so. The, the, the problem with, with being reactive is when you go back to your performance mindset, that performance was based on a lot of inertial momentum that you had last year coming into this year. It's not there anymore. And so, and so you've got to think, oh my gosh, I'm nowhere near as powerful as I thought I would have been. I need to reconstruct my power base. I need to go back to first principles and be in service to my customers and, you know, be in service to my ecosystem as well. And, and then let it build back naturally from there. 
Got it. Um, so you also discuss how disruptive technology segregates communities, um, specifically the chasm between the group of enthusiasts and visionaries and the pragmatists. Does a crisis shift the paradigm at all? And are more people likely to be enthusiastic toward new technology or less? Okay, so they won't be enthusiastic. The, the, the crisis actually has a big impact on adoption, but not because people become more visionary or more enthusiast. What happens is the pragmatist community, which normally is a wait-and-see community, I'll do it when I see other people do it, has, has now been put under, on notice. A number of things have gone very, very badly for them. And so they're looking to fix a bunch of broken processes. If your technology can align with one of those broken processes, you actually can accelerate adoption in a crisis because people come toward your solution, not because they're early adopters, but because their conventional solutions don't work anymore and they need help. And so the key to that game is something we call the whole product, meaning when you target one of those problems, you gotta help the customer get all the way to the finish line. You can't just ship your product and wish them good luck. So it's, your, your whole company has to sort of reprioritize around a smaller group of customers, a smaller set of use cases, but taking them all the way to bright. Have you seen any, any, any good examples, any technologies or companies that you see that are doing that well that people can look to? Well, there's this company called Salesforce. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But, but let me tell you something. Six weeks ago, there was no such thing as work. This whole work application for how you get back to work, it didn't exist. Nobody needed it. Okay. Right. And all of a sudden, they've said, look, this is a use case that everybody's going to care about. We need to pile in. And it's not just the R&D people coming up with stuff, which is kind of amazing in itself. It's also the go-to-market teams who are saying, look, we need to take this to our customers and get it going. So this is what I mean by the scrappiness. You know, nobody right. had this in their plan. It, the, the brochures suck. You know, the, 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 there's no good demos. There, I mean, it's all the things that you sort of say, well, this is what Salesforce does. It's like, no, it doesn't. You just have to get in there and make it happen. It's interesting that you call out being scrappy because I've, I've seen that across um, different industries, uh, especially, you know, with restaurants having closed down as quickly as they did. And you see how quickly so many of the scrappier ones have come back um, to service. So, I mean, what can people look at from that segment? You have to stop the bleeding in any way you can. Right. So there's a bunch of layoffs. They should massive layoffs. But these restaurants have also said, wait a minute, we have a food supply chain. All of our food suppliers need an outlet. And by the way, we have customers who like our food. So this whole sort of turn your restaurant into a food truck and then have drive-by pickup. I mean, it's not fabulous, but it's, it's scrappy, right? It's, it's scrappy. Now, the interesting thing about the restaurant business, though, is as we come off of this regime and go back to something, whatever, ain't old normal or new normal, the restaurant is actually going to want to try to reconstruct its past existence. It doesn't want to say, you know what, we should be in the food truck business. This is, this is the new thing. They're going to want to say, no, our role in the community is to be a place that people come to, that we have, we have cultural collaboration, good times, whatever it is, special food. Contrast that with retail. So retail in some ways is similar, right? And people like to go to malls and they like to go shopping and check things out. But the e-commerce thing has said, yeah, but we actually prefer to just buy stuff online. And right. so you, the retailer cannot afford to go back to the old normal because that normal is getting abandoned, not, not completely, but, but at least partially. They've got to invent a new normal 
which has an e-commerce element built into it and maybe takes advantage of their storefronts. And that's a very different ask than a restaurant who's just trying to get back on their feet. Right. So we've definitely seen some of the states that have, have reopened their economies and some are trying to. Um, people are tiptoeing back in. So, you know, as retail and hospitality opens up again and even large businesses return to their office buildings, um, now really seems like a time to innovate. So how can companies determine what the right innovations are for them now? Well, it's interesting. So if I, again, if I take that contrast again, for a restaurant, it's really just about getting back in. There was nothing obsolete about what they were doing. In fact, I don't know about you, but I miss them terribly. Uh, I mean, I really, I, everything about a restaurant, I just, I, as soon yeah, as I possibly can go back, uh, unfortunately, you have to be careful with that. But as soon as I, we can go back safely or whatever it is, I, I, I would very much like to do that. I think maybe the innovation might be in the supply chain. How do I keep my supply chain engaged? How do I keep it active? How do I think about that? I don't, but I'm not going to change my menu when we come back. But the retailer, I think, you know, retail was on notice anyway, right? Amazon had put retail on notice. Right. And I think this has only intensified that challenge, that existential threat. So I think retail is, is, is in a business of saying, we need to go back to our vision and values. What is the mission of, of brick and mortar retail? And, or, and what is the mission of our brand? And does, does it have to be brick and mortar? You know, how does that work? And we're seeing, it's very interesting, like 30 years ago, the, di the disparity between a consumer packaged good brand and a channel like Target or Walmart or whatever was, were miles apart. Now, with things like the Apple Store and all these fit-for-purpose stores, you see, well, wait a minute, the channel and the product brand might be the same brand or at least much more closely aligned. That's the kind of innovation I think we're going to see. And what about large companies? You have companies that have thousands of, of employees and conversations that we've seen recently talk about having to maybe stagnate um, entering the buildings just, and that's just one thing, but like, so what are some things that larger companies can do to innovate? Well, it is important. I mean, the, the work.com application, the work application is an important idea. This idea of having staggered uh, shifts where basically in order to, to socially distance, you don't bring all your workforce in all at the same time, that sort of thing. I think there's a bigger, bigger thing going on, which this you know, uh, medium that we're on right now exemplifies. We found out this is a, a very, very powerful medium. I, I talk about a situation where the crisis accelerated adoption. We all became pragmatists in pain. If we were going to work from home, we had to have something. And Zoom, I think, is probably the preeminent brand that came out of this. It's also helping Google Hangouts and Microsoft Teams and WebEx from Cisco. We're all getting into this game one way or another. So this notion of having to be clear about what is our recovery path. And, and by the way, Salesforce did some great work on this around. It's, it's pretty classic World Economic Forum stuff, the V recovery, which you know, comes back quickly, the U recovery, which takes a long time, the L recovery, which is, looks more like a depression. They even have one called the Y recovery, where the, it comes back in two parts. There's a part that comes back quickly because it's more digitally enabled. It's more the digital economy actually plays to its strengths, and then another part comes back more slowly. The point about these patterns is, as a leader in your company, you have to say which one of these is the one that reflects our industry most probably. And you have to build a temporary plan based on that recovery pattern and start acting on that plan now. But you have to be willing to say you could be wrong 
And so you're always having this sort of course adjustment. Talk about being agile. This is a time when, when the agility is really, really demanding, but it's, right. it's what crisis does. Um, speaking of Zoom and Google Hangouts, um, do you see these types of technologies evolving in any interesting ways in the near future? I actually think we're the ones that have to evolve. I was having a great conversation with Larry Schertz. So Larry Schertz runs Enterprise in America for, for Salesforce. He said for the first time in his life, he was not on airplanes the last week of the quarter. Salesforce closed the quarter from home. Nobody from Salesforce called on anyone in person, and they completed the entire process. You would have said that is not possible and that is not a good idea. And it turns out we did it. I think we're the ones who need to rethink our situation. And it's going to be an interesting question because you're not going to want to say, well, we'll never visit again. Right. Obviously, we're going, to, we're going to want to have, but, but the question is, well, but now when, to, which is which? What should be a Zoom meeting? What should be a personal meeting? And that's going to be a, a new set of protocols that we're going to sort of learn as we go along. I think in general, you need to honor your customers and honor the occasion. So for, I think on the, uh, uh, coming back, we'll probably cheat a little bit more to, the extra meeting as opposed to one fewer meetings, but at some point we'll normalize that. Um, That's actually a really interesting point uh, that we have to adjust. You wrote about um, never wasting a crisis. Um, What do you mean by that and how does that apply to present? The way in which, this is particularly true of anybody who's trying to introduce a change initiative. And of course, my whole world's with, you know, high-tech disruptive technologies. So it is, it's the technology adoption life cycle and this coarse constituency in the middle of it called the pragmatist majority, and, or sometimes they're called the early majority. They say, I'll do it when I see other people doing it. And so what that creates is a kind of an inertial preference for the status quo and an inertial resistance to the next big thing. Well, when a crisis hits, it breaks through that inertial curtain. People are now running everywhere, hither and yon. And if you can introduce a disruptive offer at that time and make it relevant to the problems that they're facing, you can't just introduce it at random, then the, the, the speed of adoption can be remarkably quick because as, as Zoom is, for example, being just a canonical case in point, because people have gone, holy smoke, we, we, we got to do something. Let's do it. And so if you waste the crisis, the temptation of saying, well, you know, we don't have enough data. Well, our, you know, our machine learning algorithms aren't up to date. We should just hunker down and kind of wait. No, 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 that's not scrappy. That's actually fearful. I know we're data driven. It's not, there's no data. But the point is, you, you, in a disrupted time, the entrepreneurial leadership is highly favored, just as in a more sustained time, kind of sound data-driven management is favored. It's not that that's a bad idea. It's just that there's horses for courses. So kind of like jumping off of that point, um, you discussed at a leadership, a tech leadership conference last year, uh, the path to innovation needs to be more disciplined. We've been talking about being scrappy, but is there a place for discipline in a post-pandemic environment? Oh, yeah. And in fact, I think, I think the path to innovation needs to be disciplined all the time. I think it's kind of two variations on that theme. One is what kind of innovation are we going to prioritize? And the other is how do we organize inside our company to manage both disruptive and sustaining efforts? Let me do the first one first, which is, look, there are three ways you can make a return on innovation. You can be differentiated. You can be like, 
okay, I'm the new, I am the new amazing thing, and you're going to buy me, and my company's going to be successful because I'm going to be really, really wonderful, and everybody else offers. It's going to be like the iPhone going up against the Nokia smartphone, okay? That's, that's great. It doesn't happen, frankly, that often, but, it, but when it happens, it's like amazing. Yeah. More commonly, particularly for established companies, is the, the return is not on differentiation. It's innovate to neutralize. So in Zone to Win, we talked about, about Microsoft doing this with Azure. They didn't invent cloud computing. Amazon nailed cloud computing. They differentiated. But Microsoft neutralized incredibly rapidly, and it's created a, a very interesting, not duopoly, but well, pretty close to a duopoly between those two. And, and it's because they were able to come back so quickly and bring most of their install base with them. So that the key to neutralization is you get to good enough, fast enough, and you don't create anything. You just copy. Just, just yeah. get back in the game, which is what Google did with Android and what Nokia did not do with, with Symbian. And then the third thing is optimize. It's when you say, look, you know, we don't have any very good alternatives in front of us right now. We need to just lower our footprint, lower our profile, lower our, it's like our carbon footprint, it's our financial footprint. And we need to get innovative about how to do what we do much, much, much less expensively. And so when you look at yourself in a crisis, you kind of have to ask yourself, I would say at the margin, startups that are venture-backed should be focused on differentiation. This is a great time to differentiate for them. I think established companies like Salesforce or Cisco or, or Accenture or anybody would say, this is a time to neutralize. Let's make sure we catch up on systems where we've been behind. And then I think if you're in trouble, you just it's, it's got to be stop the bleeding. And that's kind of an optimized innovation kind of thing. So those are the three disciplines, and I think it's important to prioritize. The idea is, look, all three are, are useful, but probably in a crisis, you can only really do one really, really well, so prioritize that one. You tweeted about it recently, and pointing to a LinkedIn article that you wrote back in mid-March. Um, how can businesses truly manage performance during a time like this, and do companies need new tools and benchmarks to measure employee success? Yeah, I mean, the problem is there aren't any benchmarks. So what you do, and the, and, the, and the thing is performance cultures have to have metrics. You can't just say, well, do your best and best effort, and it's all, it'll all be fine. That's just not the way they're wired. So what you have to do is say, okay, our, we're going to reset the metrics, and the only thing we know about our new metrics is they're going to be wrong. We don't know if they're too high or too low. We just know they're going to be wrong. But we're going to set them, and we're going to hold ourselves to, the, to, that, to that new set of metrics. And at the end of the quarter, we're going to find out where we high or low, and we're going to start doing, you know, re reshifting and say, okay, let's reset the metrics for the next quarter. Let's reset them for the next quarter. But there's serious metrics. There's compensation tied to them. We're playing tennis in the rain, but it's still tennis, and we still have a net. And, and so we're going to do our best. We'll get back. It, it, it's rocky. Uh, yeah. You'd like to make the compensation as discretionary, MBO-ish as you can, because just to be even modestly fair. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we're playing tennis, there has to be a net. Right. Um, so earlier we talked about being proactive versus reactive. And a lot of companies are thinking about the quote unquote right now and what they can do to survive, especially small businesses of all kinds all over the country. Um, for those companies looking at right now versus down the line, what advice do you have for them? Yeah. So the first thing you got to do is stop the bleeding. So just, you know, yeah. whatever that you have to get to some sort of position, which is, okay, I now have a, a stable, uh, some sort of stable thing. And then I think it's back to this issue about power versus performance, which you would say is, look, 
if I have a stable situation, I want to. I now want to create the best return, and the returns I'm going to create in the near term are not going to be great. We we got that. So, what constructively can I really accomplish in this window of time, which might be the rest of this year or even longer? I think the answer is I need to become more important to a smaller group of people. So yeah. this is a little bit like the winning the primary in a presidential election. You know, the New Hampshire primary is not a lot of delegates, but if you can win it, you gain power in a local group and you get a certain amount of notoriety for that going forward. But anyway, the idea behind this is don't you want to stop? You don't want to dilute your limited amounts of energy. You want to focus it, and the, and when you focus it, the object is to get a disproportionate share of a market segment, and the rule we use is it's got to be big enough to matter to accompany your size, but small enough to win. It's a very much more local strategy, and, and pick a sub-segment of your customer base. And by the way, go for your existing customers as opposed to yeah. trying to get new customers and, and do something to secure that relationship. And I'll tell you the best example of, of that paying off was Apple. So if, I don't know if you remember, but when Apple, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1997, yeah. it was a mess. It had yeah. like, it was a PC company with either two or 3% market share and nothing else. But it had this incredible loyal Mac faithful, which was based on the, the desktop publishing and then the marketing people and making presentations and whatever. There was this whole sort of graphic artist creative group that just, you know, well, you can have my Macintosh when you pry it from my cold dead fingers. And that loyalty, that 3% loyalty is what Steve was able to build on to reconstruct the company. So it's a very powerful thing. So it's, it's focusing on, on your current customers and, and then building from there. Once a subset, not just your current yeah. customers, a, 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 radical, a radical subset if necessary, because you really do want those people to actually get in the boat with you and help row. Got it. Um, so we've talked about a lot of different things, and I want to end on um, people everywhere, no matter where, whether we're talking about work or personal life, People also talk about wanting to get, quote unquote, back to normal. Um, will we ever get back to that normal? Do we want to? And what should we be thinking about looking ahead beyond the crisis as people start to emerge into a new normal? Yeah. I mean, there, maybe there are, as I said, you know, like I was doing the restaurant versus retail thing. There are some things which probably should try to get back to normal. I think for most companies, you have to kind of come forward to the new normal. You have to help create the new normal. Um, again, that is less scary if you are clear about your vision, your values, and your mission. If you can, if you if you just kind of re recenter yourself around those those principles, then you look at the world. And even when you make mistakes, you're making mistakes with a good heart, and your customers and partners understand that, and they'll help you course correct. But if, you, if, if instead what you do is get scared and try to get very selfish and start to get very self-optimizing. Any final piece of advice from you? Anything we didn't touch on? Well, just, I mean, <laughs> stay safe and be strong. I mean, look, the, yeah. the, emotional, the emotional drain on this is happening to everybody. And being on this medium is also draining in some ways. So we just have to get, look, we're not going to have our A athletic performance 
certainly on every day. I guess my last piece of advice, if you're having a really bad day, don't show up. Just don't go to work. Don't turn on. Just don't show because it's actually worse for you to be there than not be there. Take care of yourself. Give yourself a day or two and come back. Great piece of advice. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your insight. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. And you and you stay safe out there too. Thanks. Thanks so much. That was Jeffrey Moore and Ari Bendersky. To get more great interviews like this, be sure to hit that subscribe button. And if you are a business leader looking for resources to help you get through today's COVID-19 crisis, Salesforce is here to help. Head over to salesforce.com slash blog for practical insights, helpful tools, and more information on how you can lead your business through change. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you back here next week. Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce, a customer relationship management solution committed to helping you deliver the personalized experiences customers want, so they'll keep coming back again and again. Salesforce, bringing companies and customers together. Visit salesforce.com slash learn more.